Hi there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to today's episode of the Strategy in Leadership podcast. My name is Anthony Taylor. In this podcast, we interview senior leaders and thought leaders to get their best practices on leading teams, creating and executing strategy, and fostering the culture within an organization that works. My guest today is Justin Miller, who is the co-founder and CEO at Care for AIDS. Justin, how are you today? Doing well, Anthony. Thanks for having me on. I'm so stoked to have you on today. I got to research a little bit about your organization and yeah, it's just, it's so cool. So what I want to say about it, maybe you can introduce yourself to our listeners and, and a little bit about your background, where you come from and what's important to you. Yeah, definitely. Well, I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I have my third child is on the way. So my family's a big part of my life. I've been doing this work with Care for Age for the past 12 years first in a part-time capacity and now in a full-time capacity for about a decade. And this is an issue that 12 years ago, I didn't even really knew existed in the world today. And as like a lot of entrepreneurs, I was confronted with a problem that I felt like I had something I could contribute to that I could help to alleviate this little bit of the suffering and the pain around this issue of HIV. And I launched into this work totally out of left field for me, it was not at all what I was thinking that I wanted to kind of invest my life in. And now here we are 12 years later, and I just can't imagine being in a better place to be able to affect change on a, on a global scale. So that's a little bit about what I do and my family and live here in Atlanta, Georgia. That's fantastic. And so in terms of the organizational impact, you know, which you can read online, but I'm going to read for our listeners that you've had over 15,000 graduates from your programs, 50,000 orphans prevented, a uh, staff of over 170. Is that all accurate? That's accurate. Yes. That's awesome. I mean, it's just, it's really cool that not only can you make a big difference in, well, you make a big difference from an organizational perspective, from a company perspective, like in the lives of, of human beings all over the world. So that's very, very cool. So in terms of leading this organization, maybe we can start there. Like, what have you learned going from, you talked about, you know, your beginnings as an entrepreneur and, and moving into full-time doing this, you know, what have you learned in terms of organizational organization building or leadership that have really sort of, that's really guides you on a day-to-day basis? That's a great question. Well, at the end of the day, you know, I, I love that I get to do this work because it does, it, it marries some things that I'm very passionate about. I'm very passionate about leadership. Really a lot of what even started this whole journey was I met these two Kenyan pastors who were kind of early in their journey and they had a really strong conviction that we needed to be doing more to help those with HIV in East Africa. And part of what my draw was to this work was that I was going to get to equip leaders in Africa to be able to serve the people in their communities. And that was what really got me fired up. I care about our clients. I care about our work, but I really love being able to equip leaders to affect change in whatever way they're trying to, trying to lead. So for me, creating the kind of culture that we have creating a high performance organization that can scale. Really, that's been a big part of what we've been trying to do the last five or six years is how do we take this organization that's primarily funded by donors and help take it to scale. So I have a personal belief that the way that we that we lead is by adding value by serving people. And that's embodied in how we serve our donors, how we serve our team, how do we serve those that we're trying to reach in East Africa. And a lot of my worldview about leadership and culture and strategy 
flows out of that place. Hmm. Got that. So I'm, we'll ask you later on, on your perspective of sort of the nonprofit industry and how leaders can manage their donors and effectively, you know, develop those relationships, like you said, to, to add value. So definitely going to ask you about that. Before I do that, I'd love to ask you in terms of what have you found works in your experience in, in creating that high performance culture and in equipping people to, to lead and, and be leaders in themselves? Those are great questions. I think they're there's ways you can talk about culture and talk about leadership. Let's talk about culture for a second. Let me just give this first little caveat here that I, I believe that as we think about culture, and I know we're going to talk about strategy, that those two things are really inextricably linked to one another and, and can't really be talked about in, in isolation. Because I think at times we need to think about how do we design our culture in order to meet the strategic goals of the organization. And I think for us, you know, as we talk about how do we create a culture that is all about adding value and service and helping other people win and whatever they're trying to do, those are critical components of our culture. If you'll allow me just for, there's a quick anecdote I love about Apple and Facebook. You may have heard this before, but these two organizations, both high performance technology organizations, you go into Apple, it's this pristine environment that people work in. And if you ask people at Apple what it is they do, they'll tell you that they serve people who are geeked out by lickable technology, which I just love that line, <laughs> lickable technology. And I've been heard secondhand at the early days of Facebook in their offices, you'd go in and it looked like the offices were almost completely in renovation mode all the time. There was wires hanging out of the ceiling and on every conference room door, they had these logos of Sun Microsystems. And somebody asked them, why is it that you keep, you have these Sun Microsystems logo on your door? And they said, we want to have a constant reminder that if we don't move quick enough, we will go the way of Sun Microsystems. And so you have these two organizations, Apple and Facebook, one that's about how do we value simplicity, design, beauty, and one that says, how do we value speed? And they have designed cultures around each of those things. So I think we have to think about our culture as it relates to our strategy. But for us as an organization, you know, for me, I've, I've learned that when it comes to leadership, when it comes to culture, both of those have to start with a very clear definition of what is the culture that we're trying to achieve and what does good leadership look like in our organization. And, and we have done the hard work as a team to define these are the values and the behaviors that we think are that must be true of our culture and the people that are within it. And then once we get that part done, we can start going into how do we select for that? How do we model it as the senior leaders? How do we actually teach parts of this culture to people who don't understand it? How do we begin to measure that? How do we celebrate it? How do we defend it? There are a lot of different things that goes into a culture, but for us, it starts with are we going to be intentional about defining it? Um, a good friend of mine, Henry Cloud, always says, in the end, as a leader, you're always going to get a combination of two things, what you create and what you allow. And if we're not intentional about creating it, we will get stuck with whatever we allow. Hmm. That's really cool. You get what you create or what you allow. So have you found any you know, what, maybe what were the hardest parts of bridging that culture? And I assert that there's a culture bridge between Atlanta and East Africa. Did you find anything around that from an organizational that was like, oh, oh, what an interesting learning as you were developing this organization? Oh, absolutely. This is 
it's so fascinating to to think about how to merge these two cultures that are so so incredibly different. We did we did work really hard to ultimately come up with a list of six organizational behaviors, kind of our staff covenant that we felt like were universal, that we felt like transcended our U.S. office and our East African office. And at the highest levels of leadership, we continue to champion those six behaviors and creating those was a very participatory process. It, it really has to be of getting your team to speak into that and wrestle through what is it that we think is already true of our organization and what do we want to aspire to. And so I think culturally it's, it's a little bit challenging because there are some things that being from the West that we might want to believe just because we do it a certain way that that's the right way to do it. And we might be tempted to impose that view onto a emerging economy but there are also things that we have to respect about how they do things in the East African context that could potentially add a lot of value to our organization if we're willing to, to listen and incorporate what they're doing. But there are some things that we, we believe in our culture and in theirs that said, hey, these things are objectively, they're not the best for our organization or the people we serve, and we need to root those out. Of the organization. Obviously, some of the more common things are how we think about time, how we think about money, how we think about certain types of behaviors in the workplace. There's a lot of things that differ from culture to culture that we had to try to get alignment on. Mm. And did you find like, I mean, I, I believe that even in local scenarios, you can have different people with different expectations and how they do things and then add in time zones, generational differences, different socioeconomic status and just general views of the world. What were some of the things that you did to bridge those conversations to, you know, maybe not necessarily, like I say, air quotes, solve it because you're not trying to really solve it. You're trying to get alignment. But was there something that you found was especially useful in being able to get that alignment uh, around what you wanted to have happen internally as an organization? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. We, even just to, to your point, I, I will comment that in Kenya, there are 43 different tribes and probably 30 of those are represented in our organization. And so you would, you would imagine the vast diversity of, of thought between those different tribes, but we do have to kind of create some alignment there somehow. And, and, and the best thing I can say is that we, we just had to, to start with a, with a clear common definition and then we've had to just over communicate that time and time again in different forms and different venues to talk about. And then we need to, we had to even create incentives and disincentives for certain behaviors that we wanted to see. Some of those more material incentives and some of those more just in terms of how we celebrated and rewarded people for certain behaviors. And we had to do that to continue to, to, to drive the culture in the direction that we wanted to go. But we've had issues where we've hosted roundtables with our staff in East Africa, when the election violence in Kenya kind of reached a tipping point, wasn't even something we created, but this cultural event that was happening started to create a sense of, of, of mistrust among members of our team when the, the whole country was descending into rioting around these elections. And we had to sit down and talk about and just give a forum for people to talk about why they believed a certain way, why it is they felt they couldn't trust 
somebody from another tribe and we had to create a form for that. So there is a lot of work that goes into crossing, not just these national lines, but also tribal and, um, and racial and all these different types of diversity that we see in our organization. Hmm. Yeah. I could, I mean, I could only imagine one of the things, you know, that I heard was even just like different languages, like literal different languages and different dialects that people are dealing with. And, and yeah, the, the big part, that mistrust part. And that was really neat that you created a forum for them to just to be able to share and, and, and be with each other and to sort of take away. I find that often it's the difference between implied and explicit. And when you can take a conversation or a thought or an assumption from implied to explicit, it gives you a lot more power in dealing with it. And I think that that Reminds me of what you did is you took, you know, conceptions or misconceptions and put them right into the open for people to discuss them and then at least understand what those things are, even if you didn't necessarily need to agree with them, but you got to hear them from that person's mouth instead of just assuming that that was the general sort of state of the union. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's something that we have continued to fight an uphill battle with in our in an organization that. And I'm not sure why this is true of organizations in the faith-based sector, which is where we operate, but we sometimes have a hard time in our cultures giving really direct feedback or expressing honestly how we're feeling about other people in the organization, because it feels in some way, to use the word maybe unchristian, to have a hard conversation with somebody. And a lot of that stuff can really fester. And then that's where we've had to try to be very proactive to say, no, we, um, we need to do the hard work of bringing hard feedback, being open and honest with our team. Otherwise it will, it will cause our culture to erode. Mm-hmm. So that's been an uphill battle for us. Yeah. I could imagine that. And, you know, for you, for those of you listening at home, you know, see if you can locate yourself in this scenario and see, you know, are there any insta- instances that, you know, similar to Justin's where you might've had hard conversations that you needed to have, and maybe you had them and maybe you didn't. And then, you know, you don't necessarily need to be working across international lines to be able to overcome those, those communication barriers, you know, they exist in our backyard and, you know, even in our closest relationships with the people. <laughs> Justin, I, I, I make this joke at home and I make it in facilitation. Say, so who's ever been in a long-term relationship? Have you ever noticed that sometimes what you said isn't exactly heard by the other person? And, you know, sometimes you could be saying the same thing, but hearing different things. And sometimes you're just not talking at all. And I imagine with 200 people across different countries, you know, that can be a challenge. Unless you put a, a systems or structure in place to be able to overcome that. Yeah, it, it's true. It's, we cannot state enough how much you have to over-communicate. And our team, that's been a, a huge area for growth in, in Kenya. They they believe that it's been said, so we don't need to really say it again. But we're, we're realizing that, that not only um, that lack of clarity in roles and responsibilities and any number of other organizational things will create a lot of, of pain in the future. So especially the more diverse your organizations are, I think the more important that becomes. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to shift gears a little bit and I want to, I'd love to hear more about your experience as a, as a, you know, sort of in the donor world in the not-for-profit world. But I want to take one of the other things you talked about in terms of the stakeholder engagement. So, you know, as 
nonprofits as mission-based organizations, and in fact, even for-profit organizations, need to really embrace stakeholder management. You talked about one of the ways that you did, or over-communicate. You talked about the two-way forums and clear creating the clear common definition of what the values are. Is there anything else or what other sort of best practices would you share with our leaders who have to engage with their stakeholders to just make sure everybody stays happy? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so that's a, one of the things I'll point out too, is just that in this mission-based space, we have to remember that we operate as kind of this single organization, but we have two very different customers that we're serving. And sometimes you'll even hear me probably talk about our U.S. office versus our East African office, because we are in East Africa. We have our customer is our HIV positive clients who need the services that our organization is providing. And in the U.S., our customer is our donors. And we have to create strategies for both of those. And I think that's one of the things that nonprofits struggle with sometimes is really seeing their donors as customers. And we can talk more about that later. But I think, you know, in terms of just kind of keeping all the stakeholders on the same page, a lot of it goes into this whole strategic planning thing. When we plan, we invite all of the stakeholders. Well, first of all, let me say, we even do our programs in the communities in Kenya. We do stakeholders meetings before we launch any program because we want to draw out any of the feedback and comments from the, the general community to help speak into how are we going to design our programs for that community. And then with all of our stakeholders, whether it's our board, our donors, our staff, we, you know, this whole planning process is very inclusive and invites a lot of voices into it. But once we've kind of created a final plan that we're going to be running from, that's shared openly so people can kind of know what we're working toward. And hopefully we just can continue to reinforce those goals and those priorities consistently so that everyone stays on the same page. But I think we've probably talked about most of our practices that we've done in, in terms of stakeholder alignment. Okay. Well, then, I mean, you touched on this part, the donor aspect. How do you, I don't know, reconcile? How do you align? How do you bring clarity to the fact that you have two core customers? One is the people who are actually using your programs and one who are the donors that presumably fund the, the programs and the operations. And then are they, and you don't have to answer this question, as an organization, do you consider them equal? How do you balance the time energy that goes into, into both within your strategic plan? Yeah. So, I mean, we have the benefit of having our donors and exist right now in a separate space and geography than the rest of our clients that we serve. And so we have a pretty clear division of operations between our U.S. staff who primarily works on partner engagement and donation and donor engagement, and then our Kenyan operations and Tanzanian operations that work on implementing our programs there on the ground. But for us, as we think about the donor you know, we, we think of it like any other customer, which was which was a shift for me at one point, honestly, in terms of just kind of running the play of a lot of organizations, the nonprofits, where it's just, hey, our only job responsibility to donors to just report to them and to thank them. And we're just going to send in these newsletters and send in these thank you notes and just kind of repeat that process. I mean, we really do a, we take an in-depth look at who are our donors and what do they value and how does CareFrade provide that value to them in a way that's 
better than, you know, you can say the competition, which is true. There's also there's competition within the nonprofit space, but there's also an infinite number of things that people could do with their money as opposed to give it to charity. So it's kind of a, not necessarily there's, there's so many substitutes for giving to charity, but when we look at our donors, we segment them. Yes. By demographic, you know, yes, by geography, but we're also looking at what do they value? What do they want from an organization that they're partnered with? And that may be experiences that may be communication that may be, they want, certain types of validation to ensure transparency and accountability. And so as we look at our donors and segment them according to what they value, we can then design our strategies to by segment to address those things that those donors want from us. And, you know, we're still not even as sophisticated as we'd like to be in that area, but as we think about it, it has really done wonders for our donor engagement to say we're going to create communications and events and experiences that will add the most values to our donor as opposed to just how do we extract the most dollars or time from our, our donors and volunteers. Yeah. First of all, it's like super well said and, and it's very, very clear. And you know what I appreciate that and what I assert that your donors appreciate that is that you meet them where they are at. And I don't think it's fundamentally different than anybody else's approach in terms of action, but in terms of context and how you approach it, you're segmenting it based on how do we meet the most amount of needs of our donors. You know, how do we actually communicate that we understand their needs and frame it in a way that for them it's really clear and they understand, you know, these guys really understand us. They get us. They get what's important to us and then they make it easy for us. You sort of reduce the friction of that, you know, for lack of a better word, transaction so that they can do what they want with their money and you give them opportunities to do that, whether that be, you know, tax breaks or impact or interest or what have you, because you've really embrace, as I interpret it, this value first approach to donor engagement, stakeholder engagement, you really help people, you grease the skids on, on them being able to contribute, which ultimately makes a big impact on your second customer segment, because you know, you're really good on the first thing. And that means you can be really, you can spend more time on the second thing. And I think that's a really great approach to really be able to meet people where they're at. And it sounds like it's been successful, because obviously, you guys are growing and, and having huge impact. So that's awesome. Anything so, else you want to add on top of that? Well, no, just, just to, to kind of answer the question that I did, which is which one's more important. And, and there's really, there's not a, there's not a hierarchy there. I mean, our clients are our most important customer. I mean, it's why CareFrades was it's our mission statement is to empower people to live a life beyond AIDS. But our ability to do that is at this point in time, since we don't have any other types of of earned revenue as an organization, the only avenue by which we can do that is by partnering with donors who support our work. So we don't shy away from investing heavily in trying to figure out how do we grow our donor base and establish new partnerships. And that's a necessary investment that will allow us to be able to do more of our core mission, which is caring for our clients. Hmm. That's awesome. I got that. You wrote a book. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about the book you wrote? Just throw throw that right in there on top of the other parts. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope you go read the book. I don't think you'll you'll learn a lot about strategic planning, but I think it will uh, I think you'll still enjoy it. But it is the book the book is called Beyond Blood, 
Hope and Humanity in the Forgotten Fight Against AIDS. And I wrote this with my two Kenyan co-founders who, to our earlier conversation, are from very opposing tribes in Kenya. And it's this story of, of these three guys who, in terms of background and upbringing and tribe and nationality, couldn't be any more different. And you might think that would even be kind of a barrier to a really successful partnership. But we believe that was actually the reason that the partnership has been so successful is that these three different perspectives came together to create a much stronger, more holistic organization. And so it's just a, it just kind of paints the origin story of care phrase, each part told by the respective narrators. So all three of us narrate part of the book and kind of walks us through this journey of, of overcoming these social um, barriers between our different tribes and nationalities, but also between us and those people that are living with HIV and AIDS. And how did we come together to create something that could produce this much impact? So it's, it's a great story. I would encourage you to pick it up and hope you'll enjoy it. That's awesome. And I encourage everybody else listening to pick it up as well. Just as we finish here, uh, Justin, like what's What's like one of the things you want to leave our leaders with, whether they're for profit, not for profit, or even, you know, like second level management that are really trying to impact people and impact their communities. What's like the one thing that uh, you want them to know and and walk away from our, our conversation today? Well, I think at the end of the day, I would want people to walk away with this idea. We didn't really talk about strategic planning very much, but at the end of the day, I think we all have to, to plan and manage to certain outcomes or to certain impact. And I think that especially in our world, which maybe I'm speaking mainly to the nonprofit people here, but we just have, we have had such a challenge in the past, really getting our hands around how do we look at the impact that our organization is making. And we're mainly looking at just the activities of our organizations. And that may not be true for a lot of, for-profit companies, because if you do that for too long, you may not be in business anymore. But as a nonprofit, we have a responsibility to our clients and to our donors to really focus on how do we maximize every dollar to create the biggest impact possible. And that's what this whole planning process can do for us if we implement it well. And there can be accountability for us um, as an organization, but it can also just help us tell our story so much better. We can talk about what are the outcomes, what are the impacts that we are making. And then to kind of say another final word here, I would just say, especially in our space, we have to continue to ask ourselves, which I do with my team all the time, is have we taken enough risk here? Are we doing enough to push the envelope to try to figure out how not just to make small incremental improvements, but how do we, are we doing enough to try things that are going to fail that might have some breakthrough moment for us as an organization? And unfortunately, especially in the nonprofit space, we are incentivized not to take risks and we have to because there are so many needs that are, that need to be met. And a lot of those are only going to be achieved if we're willing to step out and take some pretty big risks. So, those would be a couple, couple final thoughts. That's awesome. I think that's perfect. And I think you hit the nail on the head, you know, the opportunity to, for strategic planning so that 
you can maximize your impact, but then also like look at the future that you really want to create and then take the steps to work backwards to do it and to be able to like, yeah, have a difference and measure it. And that's, you know, starting the call, it was everything was about your impact because that will also help you tell your story of what you're doing and incentivize people to to continue and, and follow along with, with your journey and, and to be able to contribute to increase that impact exponentially. So I thought that was very, you hit the nail on the head there, Justin. I really appreciate it. How can people get a hold of you? How can people find your book? Yeah, well, the best place to go to check out this would be to justintmiller.com. There's a link there. You can find the book. You can find me on social media. You can also go to careforaids.org and learn more about our work in East Africa. And we would love to, to partner with you in some way. And if you're interested in traveling to that part of the world and experiencing it firsthand, there's also opportunities to do that as well. So thanks for the opportunity to share today. Yeah, it's been my pleasure, Justin. Really, thank you so much. Thanks for joining. Thanks for sharing your experience. And uh, yeah, it's been really valuable. I super appreciate it. Thank you. My guest today has been Justin Miller, who is the CEO at Care for AIDS. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider liking, sharing, and subscribing to our podcast. And if you have somebody in the leadership or in the nonprofit leadership world, be sure to share this with them as strategists, as leaders. We have an opportunity to make a really big difference, not only in the lives of our employees, but in the lives of our communities and the communities we're not even a part of. So please share today's podcast, help make a difference for people and um, let's make a difference around the world. So I want to thank Justin again for being our guest today. My name is Anthony Taylor. This has been the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us and until next time. If you're getting ready to lead the strategic planning process yourself, be sure to check out our strategic planning toolkit. It has video walkthroughs to guide you through each step in the planning process from vision to action planning. We'll also have workbooks and downloads to document your plan and best practices to help get your team bought in so the plan gets executed successfully. You can get instant access to all the tools, all the templates, and all the downloads at smestrategy.net slash course.